good to see you here this morning at Evanston Bible Fellowship. For those of you who are new, it's really simple what we do. We worship, seek the face of God, and we get into the Word. We study the uh, books of the Bible at a time. We alternate Old Testament, New Testament. All last year, we were in the book of Romans. This year, we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. It's the first day of 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. 1 Samuel, So we're going to start at. If you don't know how to get there, look at the table of contents. Look on someone next to you. 1 Samuel is where we're going to be over this next year. Picked a good Sunday to start off with us. Now, to understand 1 Samuel, I'm going to have to set the context of 1 Samuel, and it's pretty gruesome. And so I'm, I'm, going, to, I just, I'm going to tell you some stories that are, I don't know, they're not appropriate for children. I'm just going to tell you that. Uh, so I'm going to try to make it PG-13 when it's clearly M.A., and it's from the Bible, all right? Just want to let you know that. If you didn't know these stories are in the Bible, perhaps you should read it a little bit more. So here we go. This is a story that I'm going to set the context of 1 Samuel. There once was a man who loved a woman. He loved her a lot, but this woman was unfaithful to him. And she moved back to her parents' home, but the man loved her. Even though she was unfaithful, he pursued her all the way back to her house, her father's house, and he won her back. And so he was going to travel with her back to his house, where they, I guess, could live together happily ever after. And as they are traveling back, they, you know, it takes a while to travel back then, they, they stopped off in the territory of Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin. They stayed in a house. And while they were staying at this house, during the night, some leaders of the town of the tribe of Benjamin came knocking on the door. Said, hey, where's that guy? We want, we want to have sex with that guy. And after some back and forth exchange, a lot of drama going on, the man did not want to do that, obviously. So what he did is he gave the man of the town the woman that he loved, and he sent her out. And all night long, the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin of this town abused her. So she comes back to the door of where this guy that loves her supposedly is staying and falls down dead at the doorstep. Man opens the door, he sees her, he picks her up, he carries her. They travel all the way back to his home. And as you can imagine, the woman he's loved has been gang raped. He's so angry that this has happened in Israel. And he wants to let the rest of the tribes know what has happened in the territory of Benjamin. So he takes a knife and he divides this woman into 12 pieces. And he sends a piece of her to each tribe of Israel to stir them up to revenge and let them know what happened. And they are upset. They see what has happened. They cannot believe this is happening in Israel. So they all get stirred up and they're all going to attack the tribe of Benjamin. And it was, it's a rout. They just massively attack tribe of Benjamin. In fact, all the women are killed. And most of the men. And there's only 600 men left in this tribe. And then after a while, the rest of the tribes, they start feeling sad. They, they are sad that they're about to lose a tribe because there's 600 men left, no women, and no one from the other tribes wants to give these men wives. So they're, they're sad they're about to lose a tribe. But they came up with a contingency plan. And this is the way the contingency plan was carried out. 
they allowed these men to get uh, women, wives, from one certain town. And so this is what the men did. They told them this plan. So the men went and they hid in the bushes. And when the women of this town came out to dance at some festival, if the men in the bushes saw a wife that they wanted, they would jump out from the bushes and go and kidnap a wife. I am not making these stories up. This is the context of 1 Samuel. And those stories come at the very end of a book called Judges. And at the very end of Judges, it says this in Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So in the background of 1 Samuel, we have gang rape, mass genocide, and kidnapping. There is no king. I mean, just 200 years earlier, they came into the land victoriously. They were following the Lord. But over time, Israel slipped into idolatry and worshiping other gods. And God would come and judge them. And God would raise up a deliverer called a judge. Uh, Remember the stories of, of Deborah and Gideon and Samson, these great deliverers would come from time to time and be the judge and and rescue Israel. But the Israelites continued to fall back into idolatry and spiritual corruption. The land of Israel is in a leadership crisis and a spiritual crisis. They're steeped without a leader in sin, so they have a leadership crisis and a spiritual crisis. And we come to the book of 1 Samuel. And what is Samuel about? It's a story about God seeing the sins of his people and providing a godly leader to lead his people to spiritual renewal. So when you think of 1 Samuel, think to yourself, here comes the king. Most of you in here I don't know all of you, but I know the circles you run in. Most of you, to some extent, in some way, are a leader of something. Perhaps you lead on campus. Maybe you lead at your family. You lead at your work. You have a variety of roles where you have a place where you are a leader. And it's a great week to talk about leadership as the president of the United States was in Evanston. At Northwestern, what great timing to talk about leadership. And over the next several months, I'm going to try to stir you up to think of ways that God may be calling you, yep, yep, you to lead where there is a spiritual crisis. I want you to think of ways that God may be calling you to lead where there is a spiritual void. What you think in different ways of the circles you run in where the truth of Jesus is absent, where the truth of Jesus is downplayed, where the reality of Jesus is slammed or misrepresented, that there are the voids and these crises in the circles you run in where God is calling you, stirring you up to be a leader. And I have to believe that just as he raised up leaders during the time of 1 Samuel to deal with a spiritual crisis, that he's still in the business of raising up leaders today. And they're sitting right here. 
And by God's grace, over the next several months, you will get a vision where you are to lead and bring Jesus where there is a void, where there is a crisis. So let's go ahead and get going. We have 1 Samuel. Let's jump in, starting with verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Joram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Uh, This should be shocking to you. (laughs) During this time of great spiritual turmoil and decadence, we have what the Bible calls in verse 1, do you see it? Feel free to underline it. A certain man. (laughs) There's nothing special about Elkanah. And we would probably say, he's just some dude. He's just some dude. But we were told in verse 3, look at it. He used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. And so coming out of a context of gang rape, genocide, kidnapping, we have a certain man worshiping the Lord year after year. There's no king at this time, and everyone's just doing what they want to do. Everything, everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. And in this context, we have this certain man who is continuing to worship the Lord. Now, what's about to happen is God is going to invade Israel, and he's going to deal with their leadership crisis. He's going to deal with their spiritual crisis. And part of God's plan is just some dude faithfully worshiping the Lord year after year. Now, I see this, and I have to stop, and I want to speak to the men in here. I want to speak to the students first. And it's the rest. Some of you in here may be freshmen. And may have noticed this morning in your dorm, there was not a lot of frenzy activity to get to church. Maybe there was. But probably not. But you got up and you came to worship the Lord. You don't, you're not judging anybody. You don't think you're better off than anybody. You just want to worship the Lord. You just want to be with God's people. You're just some dude. Good start. But the coming weeks, it's going to be much harder. You're going to get slammed at school. It's going to be so busy. You're going to get so stressed out. You're not going to sleep much. And if you get into a relationship, you're just welcoming drama. You're going to be so crammed. And I'm not even mentioning the spiritual warfare that's going to come to keep you away from the body of Christ. So you're starting good, but what's going to continue to happen? And so listen to me speak to you students, especially the men right now. To the extent that you're in Christian community is the extent to which you are going to impact the world or the world is going to impact you. If you're with brothers and sisters on a consistent basis, You're going to be putting yourself in a place where you will be impacting the world. But if you're just kind of whatever, nonchalant, 
then the world's going to be impacting you. You may think, what's the big deal? I just showed up for church, and then some, some weeks I'm just going to miss. What's the big deal? I'm hanging out with my brothers and sisters on campus, and some weeks I'm going to miss. But you know what? You're piecing those weeks together. Elkanah, just a dude showing up year after year. You're putting yourself in a place to be used by God. You don't think it's a big deal, but it's a big deal showing up consistently, and it's also a big deal not showing up consistently. And then you'll graduate. And you'll be like the rest of the men in here. And you think, well, surely it's going to be easier for us to be consistent in fellowship because we don't have as much drama. (laughs) And yet we do. And there's not a model out there. Our neighbors weren't knocking on our door saying, are you ready to go to church again today? Are you ready to go to the house of God? They're not doing that, right? And so we have the world that's modeling. The weekends are for travel. (laughs) The weekends are for sports. But gathering with the people of God... And so the same can be said to you, men. To the extent that you immerse yourselves in the Christian community, whatever that looks like during the week, is the extent that you will be impacting the world or the world will be impacting you. And my guess is most of the men in here would love to have an impact for Christ in this world. And if that's the case, be that dude. And sometimes it starts by just showing up. Showing up to ethos, just showing up to Bible study, just showing up for accountability, just showing up for worship. You may think one or two doesn't matter, but you're piecing those together and you're putting yourself in a place to be used by God. So guys, be that dude. Well, let's keep going. It gets really interesting here. Look at verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed... He would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So Elkanah is worshiping. He's divvying up part of the sacrificial animal that's theirs to eat. He gives portions to Penina and her children. And he gives a a double portion to Hannah because he loved her. Okay, let's just stop and say, let's just acknowledge the fact that Elkanah has two wives. Can we just, yeah, I'm not going to just gloss over that. He's got two wives. And and let me just say that God did not intend it this way from the beginning, but there seems to be some Old Testament allowances in cases of barrenness. And in this context here, it seems that it looks like Hannah was the one that was his first wife. She was barren, and so the law allowed him to marry another woman so that children could come, not just for economic reasons, but also to carry on the family lineage. But for those guys in here who thinks it would be great to have two wives, the Bible never gives the picture that it's great to have two wives. Obviously, it's forbidden for us, but it never gives the picture that things go well. Ever. Read the stories. And especially in this case. You know why? Because in this context here, one wife is getting all the love, Hannah, while the other wife is getting all the kids. Drama. Yeah. Here we go. Verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept. It would not eat. 
And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, guys, don't say this. Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? If your wife is having problems and you say, what's the big deal, honey? At least you have me. That's not wise. That's what he's saying right here. Hannah is so depressed, she won't even eat. And if you have ever struggled with infertility, you know the pain. And not only is she barren, but her rival is provoking her and irritating her. And this is happening year by year as they go to worship. Maybe she's flaunting the fact that Hannah cannot have kids while she's got plenty of kids. And and if you've ever wanted to get pregnant and you're having a hard time, when you're around those who are pregnant or you're around those who are having kids, it, it is difficult. But imagine being around someone who has kids who's rubbing it in. It must be so difficult for Hannah as her rival is trying to irritate her. And to make matters worse, barrenness was often seen as a curse from God. And I'm not telling you that you should view barrenness as a curse from God, nor should Hannah. But our context tells us specifically why Hannah could not have kids. It says in verse 6 that the Lord had closed her womb. Now, I'm not trying to nail down all that God is doing here, but it seems this. Get this. Hannah's barrenness is, is mimicking the spiritual barrenness of Israel. And as Hannah, in her barrenness, what she's going to do is cry out to the Lord. It's to be a model of what Israel is supposed to do in their barrenness. Cry out to the Lord. Let's watch her. Verse 9. And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. The pressure's on Hannah. She's in distress. What does she do? She prays to the Lord. In fact, she pleads with the Lord to pay attention to her. She's like, God, I know you're the one that has done this, so you need to look on the affliction of your servant. And in this bold request, she asks for a son. God, give me a son. In fact, if the Lord would give her a son, imagine this. You give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And she kind of takes like a Nazarite vow for her son. Now, Nazarite vow during this time is like, I make a vow and dedication to the Lord that no razor will touch me. Uh, I won't touch a dead body, and I'll stay away from, from wine in all forms. But Hannah seems to be making this vow on behalf of her son. Now, these Nazarite vows were often temporary, but Hannah's is permanent. She says, God, you give me a son, and I'm going to give him right back to you. And Hannah has been known for her faith for generations. And I'm just guessing in a congregation like this, some of you may even have the name Hannah. Or you even think about naming your kids Hannah, just such a faithful 
godly woman. But you know what? This famous story really is just, you know, the husband, just some dude. He's worshiping the Lord year by year. And Hannah, she's just some woman who just cries out to the Lord in her barrenness. She seeks the face of the Lord. And what makes this so striking is the context when no one else is really doing this. Perhaps there are a few, but not many. Because you know what someone would do if they were in Hannah's situation? Do you know what the women did at this culture? In their barrenness, they would turn to trinkets and idols. Now, this wouldn't be like someone in our context turning to a fertility doctor. It's not compared to that. It's basically women in this culture who couldn't have children would turn to voodoo and magic. Look at it that way. They would turn to trinkets and idols. And so you have Hannah. She's not turning to trinkets. She's not turning to idols. She's not turning to voodoo. She's not turning to magic. She's going to the temple year by year, and she's pouring out her heart to the Lord. And since I spoke to the men, I've got to talk to the women, right? Let me talk to the the, the women, the students, and then I'm going to talk to the rest of the women. Now, I want you to think about this, uh, those of you who are, are in college or grad school, women. Chances are, there are going to be seasons in college that are hard. And they're going to be a struggle. They're going to be difficult. And sometimes... That's going to be because of a boy or a lack of a boy. Because when you're in college, you're going to be, you're going to be seeing, okay, I'm in this culture, in this uh, school of mine, where I'm surrounded by the hookup culture. And don't be surprised if a guy comes your way. He's not going to say it this way, but he'll say something like this. I, I don't love Jesus, but I sure love you. And then that's going to be such a temptation. Am I going to turn to the Lord or am I going to go with the flow? So that's the hookup culture, guys. are going to be coming around you, girls. But then there's going to be Christian guys. And let's just face it. Sometimes Christian guys can be weird. Can I get an amen from the girls? Yes. I don't know. I used to be one of these weird Christian guys when I was single. I mean... We, we, we get, I got saved in college. I'm like, what, what am I supposed to do about dating now? I don't, I don't know what to do. And, and I, I, I come from a very immoral past, and I get saved. And I, I still know girls exist, but I'm not quite sure how I'm supposed to interact with them. And so I'm just weird. And so I came up with a plan that um, I wasn't going to date ever again the rest of my life. But I had interest in this girl. And I didn't want to date because I, I was just weird. And so what I did, I'm, you think I'm, I'm joking, but I'm not. I never told this girl that I liked her. I certainly never told her I loved her. In fact, we didn't talk about any of that stuff. In fact, we didn't even date. But one day, I asked her to marry me. She said yes. Three months later, we were married. Christian guys are weird. We don't make it easy, right? And so you will have pain, ladies, and I'm going to speak to you women that are students. I'm just telling you, when you have these struggles, where are you going to go? You can go to the Lord, or are you going to turn to the way everybody else is doing it? 
It's going to happen. Where are you going to go? And then you're going to graduate and you're going to become uh, uh, living the rest of your life. And I'm speaking to the women in here who are at our college and you still have pain. And maybe it's a guy still causing you that pain. Or maybe it's something else. You have struggling, you have difficulties. And I, and I, I want to ask the women in here is what, what is your default trinket? When the suffering comes, are you like Hannah and you go to the Lord? Or do you go to your trinket? Or do you go to your idol? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's shopping. Maybe it's a dream world. When the suffering and the pressure's on, are you going to the Lord or do you go to your trinket? And women, I I know you. I know you want to have an impact upon other women. But what you need to do as you are discipling other women, when you are suffering, those who you are discipling need to see what it looks like to go to the Lord and not to the trinket. Not perfectly, but if you're going to impact others, when you suffer, you model discipleship by turning to the Lord. That's what Hannah's doing. Just some woman, faithfully turning to the Lord. We'll finish up her story. Look at verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being a drunk? Put away your wine from you. I mean, Hannah is having a hard time with these guys. Her husband doesn't understand. Eli thinks that she's drunk. She continues on. Verse 15. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all long I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. God grants Hannah's request, of course, to bless her. But God also grants Hannah's request to raise up a leader for the nation. And what we have in Samuel is a leader that's going to address the spiritual crisis and the leadership crisis. Because did you know that Samuel is going to be Israel's last judge? And he's going to be a prophet, too. He's going to speak the truth. He's going to bring Israel to repentance. And he's going to get Israel walking with the Lord again. And what is really cool about Samuel, he seems to be this bridge as God is going to bring a king after God's own heart on the scene. And God is starting to do a work. And the way he's starting to make a provision for a king, for a leader, he's doing it through just some dude and just a certain woman 
who are trying to be faithful, serve the Lord year after year as the culture continually does great sin. And what is really awesome, my brothers and sisters, is if you project years in the future, many years in the future, there came on the scene just some dude, and his name was Joseph. And there was just some certain teenage girl, and her name was Mary. And God started to address the spiritual crisis in the world by sending his son, Jesus. And Jesus really came on this earth. He really lived a perfect life. He was really put on the cross as bearing the wrath of God. He was buried and rose again. And in what God is doing is he's addressing the spiritual crisis in the world of separation between humans and God. And he's bridging that gap through faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is God's answer to the spiritual crisis in the world. This past week, I was sharing Jesus with this guy. And I was talking to him about Christ. Um, the guy believed that the way that you go to heaven is just be a good person. And maybe if you're good enough, God will let you in. And while I'm talking to him, I notice he has a big cross right here on his arm. I'm like, what's the point of that cross? And as we talked over and over again, I said, man, the answer to the spiritual crisis of a relationship with God is on your arm. Just look at your arm. Every day you see your arm right there. It's Jesus reconciling you to the Father through faith, not your good works. It's Jesus. He's the one that's dealing with the spiritual crisis. And ultimately, we can say, Jesus is the king. He's the one that came, that God sent to deal with this crisis. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you submit to the king. And if you submit to the king, you know what God does in you? He starts to use you to deal with the crisis in your context, the void of the gospel where you're at, whether it's with your kids or in your dorm or your work. There is a, a Christless void, and you're the one to fill that gap and to speak the gospel truth. And there's been many that have come through these doors. Years ago, we had a guy at our church. Um, his name was David Blanchard. Maybe some of you would have known him. You see, David Blanchard was just some dude. He was just some dude going to Kellogg, getting his degree there. Just some dude being faithful to his wife. Just some dude being part of an ethos community. Just some dude serving creatively within this body. And when he was done, he moved to New York City. And can you imagine all the leaders, all the people in the city? And God was leading him to start a movement of something called Praxis. It's a very innovative work where he is integrating his faith in training nonprofit and business entrepreneurs. And he's training them to make a kingdom impact in the midst of this spiritual void. And it is a really cool work. And God is using him. But the path to getting there is very simple. He's just pieced together the days where he's just faithfully showing up. Just some dude. There's a woman in our congregation right now. Many of you know her. Her name's Erin, Erin Donahoe. And she is involved in campus ministry, as many of you might know. 
She's also on the worship team at our church. She's a Sunday school teacher for our kids. In fact, she's one of the co-leaders of my ethos community. And, and she is in college. She's a senior. And tomorrow marks the, um, her third year anniversary of being a Christian. So she's new in Christ. And you might say, well, she's, she's a new Christian. She doesn't know. She doesn't need to do all that stuff. Like for those of us who are growing up in church, we know you, you don't have to do that stuff, right? Just, just do whatever. Show up and go home and do whatever. Like, she's like, no, I'm saved. Jesus is where it's at. So the church must be where it's at. People have got, I'm going to be involved in this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, just give my life for this. And she's just a certain woman. And this is a room filled of just dudes. <laughs> this is a room filled of just certain women. And the, the issue is the extent that you immerse yourself in Christian community is going to determine whether you are impacting the world or the world is impacting you. And you may think, I'm missing here, missing there, busy here, busy. doesn't matter. But those things build upon one another. They build upon you just showing up to campus Bible study, showing up to church, showing up accountability. You piece those together. You put yourself in a place where God is going to use you. And if you are serving the king, don't be surprised when the king starts to move you and put you into spots where there are spiritual voids, where there are spiritual crises, so that you can bring the gospel. I'm not asking you to be spectacular. Pretty much, I'm just asking you to start showing up. Elkanah, Hannah, just showing up. Not turning to the trinkets and the idols in the world, just showing up, faithfully serving the Lord, faithfully worshiping Him, and faithfully just saying, God, whatever. And we want to serve the same King they served. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you have sent King Jesus to rescue us, to deal with this, this spiritual crisis we had in separation from the Father. You have had a history of leading your people back to you. And we are recipients of that grace, even in our time. But Lord, here we are. Many of us are just saying, okay, where, where do you want us to serve? Lord? And some of us know that that void is our family. We've not been leading our kids into Jesus. We've not been leading our spouses to a closer walk with the Lord. That's the void. It's our families. And so many of us, we've got to focus there. Some of us have come here today, and we know the void or the crisis is in the dorms, on the team. We've, that's where God's put us. Others, it's at work. Others, it's in the community. We know. Lord, just show us. You are King Jesus. We bow to you. Where are those voids? Where are those crises in our time, in our day, where you are raising up, not somebody else, but us? May we be open. May we be faithful. May we just show up. Do that work in us for the glory of King Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.